as we uh, kind of go through all of the gospel of Luke over the next, oh, probably year or so, something like that. And again, we may take a couple of diversions as we get into Advent or Lent. Um, we really don't know what we're doing. We're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants here. And so, uh, but it is good to, uh, to just travel through uh, this gospel together. We remember that what we're wanting to do is to remember who Jesus is, to, to see Jesus anew, to see Jesus afresh, and to ask in what ways might Jesus be different uh, than what we had imagined, or what new thing uh, might Jesus say to us. And so now we've reached the third chapter. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses, and so I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? And he reply, In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water but one is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we take another moment to simply create a space that we may likely not have had in this week. A week that has perhaps taken us this way and that and running from one thing to the other. A weekend of tasks, of things remembered and things forgotten, of things we enjoyed and things that we despised, news that filled our hearts with joy and that which perhaps filled our hearts with terror. And we gather all of those things. We come in here this morning and we offer them up to you. Speak to us today through John the Baptist, Lord. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as you heard, Luke begins uh, our passage today, just as he did uh, a few weeks ago, with a litany of political and religious Leaders. Now, again, as we said a few weeks ago, a part of the reason why John does this likely is just to remind us that this is a real story, right? This is not a fairy tale. This is not, you know, once upon a time. This is something that happened in real time and in a real place. But it's also likely that the reason why Luke did this is to also help us to feel, get a sense of the jarring nature of this story and of the way in which God works. I want you to hear this just once more. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Atyria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you get a sense of that kind of jarring nature? Luke is beginning by painting this picture of political and religious heavy hitters. People who have all sorts of power and resources. And he paints all of that dramatic picture. And then he tells us that where the word of God is, is not with any of them, but is with some guy named John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It's a bit like if we started this by saying, you know, in the second year of Joseph Biden, in the 15th year of Vladimir Putin, uh, and the high pastorate of name, I'm not going to get in trouble, name whatever high powerful religious leader you want, the word of God came to Thorntown, Indiana. Thorntown's a great place. But if you're thinking about where is the power you would think Washington, D.C. or some other place, not in the middle of what seems to be nowhere. And not only this, but then the message to which Luke or which John the Baptist is preaching. He's talking about, he's not talking about power. He's not talking about a revolt or a rebellion. He's not speaking ill right here of the Romans. 
No, he's speaking about repentance. It's hard to get people excited or to capture the imagination of people when you're talking about repentance. Maybe if you're talking about someone else's repentance. We like those kind of, you know, stories. Those are very interesting. But our own repentance? And then he goes on. And he begins, Luke does, he describes for us uh, the prophet of Isaiah and his words, right? You remember that, to make his path straight, that every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked will be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. I like what one commentator said, which is that clearly what, uh, what, what Luke is pointing out here is that the future of the kingdom of God looks very much like the Midwest. Very flat, very smooth, no big mountains, no big valleys. But what Luke is trying to help us to see is that there is this allusion to, to the wilderness as well, to when the Israelites left the chains of slavery in Egypt and started to go to the promised land. And the fact that the way into, it's a smoother road into repentance and where Jesus is. Not only that, Luke goes on to point out that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. David Lowe says this, says that in one stroke... By suggesting this, Luke reaches across the history to claim all of his readers, then and now, all of those who have put faith in, their G in Jesus. In other words, kind of like what we've been talking about, you know, we've had this image of the tapestry. And here what Luke is doing by saying all flesh, all those who believe in Jesus, that, that, that they are all a part of this story that started 2,000 years ago that we are all a part. In other words, this is not just a story in Luke 3. This is our story. So as we have said many times, as we begin to look at Scripture, what we do best is to imaginatively dive into this story. Because it is our story. And then, if our attention has not yet been caught, surely it is caught when John the Baptist says to those who have gathered, those who have come all the way out into the wilderness to see him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Jeez, John? You know, it might not hurt to just say, hey, I want to welcome everybody to the church at the wilderness. If you're a visitor, we've got a small gift over there at the worship wadi. You're going to love it. And we're just so glad that you came. But there's none of that. And commentators, when they read this, they're really befuddled oftentimes by this. And, and as if we pastors are idiots, um, you know, they, they, they say almost there's a sense of, hey, you know what? You might not want to try this today. And to be sure, if I'd stepped up here and just said, welcome, you brood of vipers, it may not have gone over well, right? Maybe one or two of you? And so to be sure, in 2022, we don't really want to just hear and be welcomed by saying, you are a brood of viper. But that said, as I thought about this, I remembered, I actually have quite a few friends and family. I understand they, they may not be all that normal, but they... They don't feel like they've been to church unless they have been challenged. They don't feel like they've been to church unless their toes have been stepped on in some 
way. They love coming to worship and hearing them be challenged and saying, yeah, I needed that lashing today. And I'm not suggesting that that's healthy. Nor do I think it's healthy to say, oh, all we want to do is just be encouraged and loved and just said, everything's great. You're wonderful. Nothing needs to change. Because the truth, of course, is, is in between that, there is this meandering journey where most of us know that things are not as they should be. Either out in the world or if we can be so vulnerable and honest even within our own lives. And there is oftentimes a sense of, strangely enough, joy in knowing that it is recognized and that we do not have to ignore it. I was having coffee with someone earlier this week who said to me, he was describing how when he met his wife probably 20 years or so ago, and she was just his girlfriend, that he introduced them for the first time to his very, introduced her for the very first time to his good friends. And after they met this girlfriend, they said to uh, 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 my friend quietly, they said, they said, this is the one. And he said, well, how do you know? And he said, because she is not going to put up with your stuff. <laughs> she is going to call you on the carpet. And that's what you need. And, and they were right. Now, please hear me. She's also loving and gentle, his wife. This is not just someone, no one wants to only be around someone who's always like, you are really a brood of viper. You're really just a brood of vipers. No, no, no. There's a lovingness to that as well. But the truth is there is a gift this is why it's actually good news, as strange as it may sound. There is a gift in someone being able to see all of you and love you enough at times to be able to call things out when they need to be. Did you just look over and say, that's who I am for you, Lynn? Is that what you just did? I was just checking. Okay, good. I didn't mean to call that out, Dale. But uh... John goes on to say, that they need to bear the fruit of repentance. I like that. One of the things that does it points out, as Tim Keller suggests, that the things that we do, the ethics that we do, that we'll talk about in a moment, these things are fruit. They begin always with repentance. We've been talking a lot about repentance of late here at ZPC. I, it's not been intentional. I don't feel like the Spirit's saying, you know, the ZPCers, they seem to really be going astray of late. You need to keep talking about this. I, I don't think that's why it is, but I do know it's hard to read the Gospels or much of Scripture without there being talk of repentance, talk of brokenness, and even of sin, of course. I don't think this is because of the fact that God takes great delight and talking about repentance or because it's just fun to do so. But as we just said, there is a certain amount of freedom that comes from being able to be honest. I, I love what uh, Judith Jones says. She says this. She says that repentance, it doesn't erase our past. But it does free us from that past. It doesn't erase our past. But it does free us from that past. I think we saw that last spring when we were talking about King David and, and the reality that, that in his sin and in his brokenness, there were real repercussions, right? It wasn't like when he confessed all of a sudden, you know, everything he had done before, there was no more cost to it. No, it's, it's real. However, it was because of the fact, as we said then, that he could confess without caveat. That then he was able to actually learn from his brokenness and actually begin to grow from his brokenness. This again is why repentance is good news. It is actually freeing for those who have the courage to be so honest. 
But it must be genuine repentance. Let's be clear. You know, you don't have to raise too many children to know that it's very easy for kids to say, I'm sorry, and then two seconds later do the exact same thing again. And so there's a sense, right, that the word for repentance in Hebrew, shub, it means to go in a different direction. So that repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, and then you just keep going in this direction. There is a sense of actually turning and going in a different direction. And we were talking about this some at the worship uh, staff meeting on Wednesday. And we brought up, a lot of times we just think about one big repentance, right? Which is kind of this saying, hey, I'm sorry before Jesus, and that is absolutely critical. Please hear me. That's, uh, in theological terms, that's justification. But then we move towards sanctification, and we kind of put a more current uh, verbiage behind that. Being shaped more like Jesus. And, and repentance, what you begin to learn the longer that you're in this, is that you begin to do all of these, that, that the life of, of faith is oftentimes a life of a lot of repentance. And it's a lot of just kind of being shaped and, and turned more and more in the direction of Jesus. That it's oftentimes like a big boat trying to make a turn. It just doesn't make just one turn. It's these little repentances as we keep trying to get closer and going in the same direction as Christ. And so we begin to learn here about the importance of this repentance, of being shaped more like Jesus. But here we are met with what I think is perhaps the most fascinating part of this story. After hearing these words about them being a brood of vipers and repentance, the crowds say, what then should we do? Even the tax collectors, we are told, who are they, say, they are saying, what should we do? The soldiers say, what should we do? And you could imagine that if you were John the Baptist at this point, you're very excited Right, because you realize that those people who are here, they are here for a real reason. That they didn't get overly defensive and say, no, we don't need to repent. Uh, they didn't just run away and go back home. They stayed and they said, if this is true, what then should we do? And what does John the Baptist tell them? What does John the Baptist, you remember John the Baptist, radical John the Baptist, right? Uh, as Matthew would describe him, this is a locust uh, uh, eating, a honey eating, uh, a camel wearing, shouting and screaming, wilderness residing, brood of viper calling, axe wielding, describing, long haired preacher. How does he respond? How does crazy man John the Baptist respond? Do I need to keep going to paint this picture? Ah, what does he say? If you have two coats, you should give one away. If you're a tax collector, just go on back and don't charge more than you should. If you're a soldier, don't try to extort money from people. How anticlimactic is that? That's it? That's not what we wanted. This is John the Baptist, wild, crazy man John the Baptist, who has given up on all the finer things in life. He lives out in a wilderness. I mean, this has got crazy-looking eyes. This is John the Baptist. 
practice. Well, don't you expect him to say, what should we do? I'll tell you what to do. Go quit your job and give all of your money away. You should start fasting three weeks out of the month. Don't ever take a shower again. And you should go into the city streets and then you should do what I love doing, which is calling everybody there a brood of viper. That's what you should do. Isn't this more in line with what we would expect a charismatic and radical John the Baptist to say? But did you notice that that is not at all what he said? Go back to your closet. If you happen to have a couple jackets, give one away. If you have extra food, give some of that away. Work with integrity and honesty. We came all the way out to the wilderness to hear that. You could have just come to my house and told me that. We traveled all this way to hear from the radical John the Baptist, and that's what you tell us? It all starts so promising. Because this is what we want. We want something radical. We want to hear something big from our visionary and crazy leaders. We want to, we want to hear this huge picture of, of everything that we should give up. We want to have this vision plan that has fireworks and sacrifice. And, and we want to then be able to hear how if we do these things, all of a sudden we're going to change the world, not just to mention even ourselves. We want to, we love, we love a notion of sacrifice. It gets our adrenaline going. It gets us excited. Now, please hear me. We don't actually want to do those things, at least not over a great deal of time. But, but we want to hear them because this is why we have you. We love hearing about these things, these radical things. But the truth, of course, is those kind of radical things are rarely ever sustained it's a bit like diets it seems to me i don't know about you but when i meet people who have lost a decent amount of weight eventually usually the conversation comes up how'd you you know what happened how, how did this happen and and, and about, probably about 90 percent of the time it's something that's just crazy sacrificial right i've got a pastoral colleague who uh who he lost i think actually close to 200 pounds but let's just say over 100 pounds by only eating meat true story But deep down inside, almost always what I think to myself after I hear this is this is not going to last. Because there are very few people, you can from time to time, but there are very few people who can go down all of a sudden in one immediate fell swoop with this radical life and actually sustain it at all. But the truth, of course, is that it tends to be much closer to John the Baptist. The way to live tends to be much closer to John the Baptist, which are these small acts of repentance these small acts of generosity these small acts of love these small acts of integrity do i think that they can grow over time until at some point maybe years down the road you look back and you realize what a radical shift has occurred in your life absolutely but more often than not as we meander during this journey it is those small acts There's a lot of talk these days in our culture about heroes. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want you guys to think I'm saying something I'm not. I think there are a lot of important jobs that we have and a lot of fields of work that are really important. So please hear me. I'm not suggesting that we don't have heroes in our midst. 
But I am suggesting this, with so much talk about heroes all the time, in many ways it begins to cultivate the sense that whatever I do, it needs to be heroic. I want to be a hero. Who, if given the option, do you want to be a hero or not a hero, doesn't say, I want to be a hero. But all of this conversation about hero makes us begin to think, this is just the way of it is. I need to be a hero. And what I want to suggest to you today is that in the Christian world, in the world of those who follow Jesus, what we need are far fewer heroes and more people who are willing to say, here I am, a servant of the Lord. Far more people who are following what Mary said, simply saying, here I am, not I need to be a hero. Because more often than not, this is exactly the way the kingdom of God spreads. Not from doing one heroic act, but from simply saying, here I am. Which means not only, here I am, Lord, whatever you tell me, I'm going to try and do that. But literally, here I am. This is where I work. What here might I do? This is where I live. What, what, what here might I do? This is where I play. What here might I do? What small act of love or grace or hope or repentance or generosity might I do right here? Because far too often we keep waiting for a heroic moment to do something for Christ. And in the midst of that we have missed opportunity after opportunity to say here I am. What here might I do? When I was in a small church in Chicago I would go off to these conferences. These big church conferences. They were amazing. They were literally amazing. I mean, you would go and they would have these heroic worship leaders, man, and they would just cause your heart to soar and there would be thousands of people all singing the same song. It's like, this is a bit of heaven. You'd hear these preachers, these heroic preachers, and they would move you to tears both of joy and of sadness, and you were just, oh, the Spirit is, it is amazing. We'd hear about these heroic churches that were doing all this mission work, and they were the most powerful mission-centered churches of all time, sending people everywhere. And you'd be like, oh, this is incredible. And I'd go home, and I was floating. Oh, I love God. I love the church. And then I'd land back at my church where I was serving. And it was small. Very ordinary. They had a choir. They they it was it was it was fine. They had a preacher. But the only thing he was moving many of them to was to do a deeper slumber as I looked out. And I realized this is the most ordinary people and ordinary pastor of all time. And I was depressed. Literally, I would get depressed after coming home from these great heroic conferences because I thought, this is it. And what I know is this. I probably missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to see God at work because all I could do was just see all of these very ordinary people. And I missed out on the stories like this and throughout the Gospels where we see it is not the heroic more often than not. It is the very ordinary who say, here I am. You see, to kind of take off on this death by a thousand cuts, here's the reality. Life, kingdom life, more more often than not happens 
by a thousand small acts of repentance and generosity and honesty and fidelity and love. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a story I told you all a few years ago now, but it's a story that I think needs to be told every few years. It's about a ZPCer, so you may recall it. Uh, he'd been married, an older gentleman, been married for, for many years, for decades, when his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so he took care of her at home over the years until she reached a place where it was, uh, he was unable to continue to care for her in a way that she needed, and so she went into an assisted living situation. But he kept going. Every day, he went in to see her. Every day, even though the odds of her ever remembering that he had been there were almost nil. One day, after knowing him a bit better, I said to him, you know, can you just tell me, what, what do you do? When you go in to see your wife, what do you do every day? And he said, well, go in. I hold her hand, and she takes my arm, and I squeeze her hand, and I say, I love you. And she rubs my arm and says, not as much as I love you. And every time, and I think about this story a lot, one of the things, one of the great reminders is this, uh, even in the midst of brokenness, I want you to hear this, of the brokenness of disease, even in the midst of that, love, small acts of love that are done every single day can overcome even the worst of what this world offers. Every single day. And what was also incredibly remarkable to me is this, that you know decades earlier he made this covenant. Decades earlier he said, I do through all that we may see. And here he is with hardly anyone around and every single day he is coming in saying, here I am. This will never make Heroes Magazine. It will never be broadcast out to thousands. But I am here to tell you that I have been influenced dramatically by this simple story. The way that I look at Megan has been changed by this story. The way that I see passages like this has been changed by this story. Why? Because one person's small act of love and fidelity again and again and again, it begins to change the world. Not in one fell swoop, but I promise you, if you see him on this tapestry, and you do, there he is right there, that because of that there are attendants, there are doctors, there are nurses, there are people like me and those who know him whose lives are changed because of the fact that this man each and every day would go by and say, I love you, and would say, here I am. This is the way, as we see with John the Baptist, this is the way of the kingdom. God came to ordinary people. Jesus didn't come down, take us all up to heaven, make us heroes, and then bring us back down. Jesus came down 
in our ordinariness. That in that very ordinariness, wherever we go, whoever we see, that there are always opportunities for us to reflect the love and the grace and the generosity of Jesus Christ. I love what Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says. He says, there is not one square inch of this universe about which Christ cannot say, that is mine. The reason Christ can say that is because of the fact that we as ordinary people are called to go out across the neighborhood, across the globe. And in those places, we always have opportunities to help say, this is Christ's. Now this morning, I don't want to just kind of leave us there. I want us to have some space to begin to just simply Listen, I'm going to have us take two or three minutes. Hopefully you got a piece of paper about this that just simply says, what should we do or what then should we do? And if you didn't get that piece of paper, you can certainly just lift your hand up and uh, one of our ushers here will hand that to you. I want us to take a couple of minutes even now. Nothing comes to you, that's fine. But remember, we're not looking for our heroism. We're simply looking for the sense of here I am. So let's take a couple of minutes now. small act of repentance or generosity or love or fidelity or honesty or integrity might we do this very week I want to end this morning by just kind of 
pointing out that one of the hopes of our congregation and leadership, as strange as it may sound, is that worship and Sunday mornings here is as ordinary as is possible. Because what we don't want, much like I kind of uh, had it when I went from a conference to the reality of churches, I don't want what we do in here to be radically different than what you do when you go out into the world. And so it's a part of the reason why, you know, we've talked about doing silence and, and, and why we do our silence in here. Because if we can kind of get in the mode of saying, yeah, being silent, being quiet, that's, a, that's something that we do in worship. And it's something that we can do when we go out. It's why when you come in through these doors, uh, the front doors, uh, we hope that we, we, we always have some, some donuts and coffee. Because we want it to feel like a, a living room, right? And, and so we say, welcome, uh, brood of vipers. It's good to have you. Um, here's some donuts. Here's some coffee, right? Uh, when you come into this place you know we, we talk about this this is not a black windowless box why because we do not live in black windowless boxes we live in actual sanctuary we live in actual like houses that have or apartments that have windows that look out we want you to always be able to look out so that whatever you're hearing in here is not so different than, than what you see as you go outside. We want you to see that, that this includes every square inch, the trees that we see and the, the cars that we see and the, the, the air that we see, all of those things. Uh, we think that our music, we want our music to be ordinary. What does that mean? It means that we want some of those songs to annoy you. We want you to not like some of the songs. I know it seems weird, doesn't it, to say that? I want you to know I don't always like the songs that we sing. But you know what? In my own house, I hear a lot of songs that I do not like. Amen? I mean, I go in there, there's some kind of Disney on Pandora playing or Hamilton. I know lots of people love Hamilton. I've never gotten into it. And they're singing it and they're all having a great time. And I'm like, oh, put me out of my misery. But you know why I stay there? Well, I got no place else to go for one, but... Because I love my children more than I disdain the music. Living in community is always about loving some things and not liking some things. It's why we'll have a baptism later on today, and we're going to use very normal, ordinary water, right? We talk about this. This is not water from the River Jordan or the Jordan River. No, no, no. It's not been blessed by any religious hero. It's not even Culligan. It is just tap water. And why do we use just regular old central Indiana tap water? Because when you go home and you turn on the sink, we want you to remember that it's the same water that was used for baptism. When you grab some water and you begin to drink it, it's the same water. When you go to work and maybe there's a lawn that's being sprinkled, it's the same water. We want you to remember that wherever you are, where there is water like the waters of baptism, that you are a baptized and loved child of God. The more ordinary it is, the more you begin to see this is why Jesus came. To meet us in our very ordinariness. And that we might then begin to go out and do these ordinary, what seem ordinary, but these small acts of repentance and generosity and love and fidelity. Until the tapestry of God's kingdom reaches every square inch of this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would be with us in our ordinariness. That 
we would see and know and experience you. That we would not wait for moments to be heroes, but that we would simply say, here I am. Show me, God, what small act I might do today. That we might grow closer and closer to being shaped like Jesus as we build for your coming kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.